God, we thank you for your word. God, we do, as we're, we're thinking about it, we thank you that you love life, that you created it, that you gave us life. And you not only give us physical life, you give us spiritual life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts and uh, speak to us through your word and just be glorified in our midst. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. So, tonight we are going to dive into Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. That's the order that they're written in, or that's the order that they find themselves in the scripture. And that is not necessarily the order in which they were written. Uh, most likely, Song of Solomon was written first, and then Proverbs are sort of collected over the lifetime of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes is written at the end. And uh, for somewhat obvious reasons, I'd rather end on Proverbs. So if you would, we're just going to teach them backwards tonight. We're going to start Song of Solomon, then we'll go Ecclesiastes, and then we'll go to Proverbs. So Song of Solomon is a, it's a love poem, it's a love song. Um, Chapter 1, verse 1 says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. So some of your translations may call it Song of Solomon. Some may call it Song of Songs. Uh, really, it's Solomon saying, this is my number one song. This is like, this is the one that I'm proud of, right? And then songwriters oftentimes have the one that they're really proud of. And this was Solomon's. And it's a love song between him and uh, this gal who he winds up marrying. And there's a couple other characters, but it's kind of a play kind of a rock opera, kind of whatever you want to call it. Um, if you want to sum up the book in a nutshell, here's the quickest and easiest way to summarize the book of Song of Solomon. He is really into her, and she is really into him. And you can sum up the entire book pretty quickly that way. But, um, and, but before we entirely move on, there are a couple things that we want to notice. Um, so, it's a love song. It's a love poem. Uh, there's a lot of very descriptive language. And you can look at it and say, wow, this is a beautiful description of a relationship between a man and a woman. But knowing what we know about Solomon, it's just a tad awkward because we know that by the time Solomon died, he had over a thousand women in his harem. And I crunched the numbers and realized that that would mean that from the time he became king to the time he died, he added a new woman every two weeks. Um, which is just flat out awkward, right? I and mean, there's just no way around. That's just weird. Um, so as we look at this, like, how does this fit? Where does this fit in the chronology, right? Like, is this girl number 122 or 713? And, uh, you know, who is she? And truthfully, we don't know. Um, a lot of people say this is probably uh, very early in Solomon's life. Just a lot of the physical descriptions would suggest a really young guy. The amount of passion involved would suggest a guy who's fairly young uh, and his hormonal condition. And uh, so there's some speculation that maybe this is his very first wife. And some people would say, hey, maybe she was the first and then she died and Solomon said, let's collect them all. Some would say maybe she was the first and Solomon just moved on. We really don't know and we don't need to know. But, um, but we need to look at it and understand a couple things. Because we're looking at, you know, a poorly qualified expert on love writing what's considered probably some of the most romantic language in the Bible. And so do we just disregard it? Well, no, because it's in the scriptures. So what do we do with it, right? Well, we got to remember a couple things. One, romantic love is not a bad thing. It's actually a beautiful thing. God invented it. God had the idea for it. God said, I've got this great idea. I'm going to make Adam, a helper, 
and we're going to put them in the garden together uh, so they can, you know, exercise dominion over the earth so they can together more fully have a relationship with me. So romantic love is a great thing. It's not the greatest thing. And so, you know, it's God's idea, but it's God's idea within certain context and certain frameworks. So if you've got it in your life, God bless you. Um, it's supposed to exist within a couple contexts, though, and really it exists within one context, and that is the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. And so even, you know, in Song of Psalms, there's three different times where they say, um, basically, don't awaken my love until it's time. And, and that's very important to understand that, you know, this is a great thing. It's a gift from God. And God created men and women with different needs and different desires, and they come together in the form of marriage. But they're supposed to only come together in the form of marriage. So that's sort of, you know, we look at it and we say, okay, we, we remember that romantic love is God's idea and it's a great thing, but it's not the greatest thing because we're created uh, to know God above and beyond anything else, right? And so that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, the other thing is, as you're reading it, there's gonna be a couple things that just don't make any sense whatsoever. And that's because you're reading it 3,000 years later and you are part of the Western world. And so we'll just give a couple quick examples here, just because you want to have a little bit of context when you're reading this. So in chapter 7, verse 2, uh, Solomon is talking to the, uh, to the girl, and he says, well, we'll just, whatever, we'll start at 7-1. He says, how beautiful are your feet and sandals, O prince's daughter. Your feet look really nice. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the works of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. So he's trying to compliment her. Obviously, I'm not married, so I don't, I'm not qualified as a relational expert, but I would go on a limb and say that in a Western context, if you're going to compliment a woman, just stay away from the subject of her navel altogether. Um, there's like nothing good that comes from that, right? Um, telling her that her stomach looks, her belly is like a heap of wheat. What does that look like in your mind? Most of us picture like a 50-pound sack of grain. That's because we live in a Western culture. And we live in a modern Western culture where we're very visually oriented. So if I say, it looks like a sack of wheat, you all picture a sack of wheat. And what do sacks do? They sag, right? And so you're picturing a really awkward compliment. But it's not because it's an Eastern culture. And Eastern cultures are not as based in uh, images as they are in concepts. And so he's saying, like, basically, when I look at your, like, your stomach and I think about all the children that you could bear and the family we could start, it's almost like, you know, a sack of wheat and all the acres of wheat that could grow from it. And so he's, he's actually offering her a decent compliment in the cultural context, okay? Um, so if you read something that just doesn't make any sense or looks really awkward, Bear in mind that you're a little bit culturally removed. Uh, in chapter 8, she says, Oh, that you were like a brother to me. Which I want to ask for a show of hands. How many men have ever been told by a girl that they'd rather think of you as a brother? But it's not really a great thing in the States. Um, and what she's said, but, and again, in a cultural context, uh, in an Eastern culture, a husband and wife could not show any physical affection in public. But a brother and a sister could. So she's saying... Boy, if you were my brother, I could just kiss you right out in the open and nobody would care. But you're my husband, so we've got to, like, look all kind of stiff and formal. And so, you know, there's some cultural things there. But, um, and then lastly, as we're looking at Song of Solomon, 
one of the things to remember is that whenever we see marriage, we are seeing something uh, that's a parallel to the gospel. And, we can, and some people turn Song of Solomon into this entire allegory about Jesus Christ in the church. And you don't want to over-allegorize something, you don't want to under-allegorize something. So what are we looking at? We're looking at a love song between two people. And we said at the beginning, he's really into her, and she's really into him. But whenever we look at the context of marriage, we are seeing a picture of the gospel, because that's what the scripture gives us other places. It says, basically, in a sense, marriage is instituted to give us a picture of the gospel. The role of the husband in a marriage is demonstrating for us the role of Jesus Christ and his love for the church and the way that he just wants to protect her and nurture her and bring her into the, all the fullness that he has for her, right? That he would die for her and love her with that self-sacrificial love. And the role of a wife in a marriage is to demonstrate what should be the role of the church in response to Christ and how the church, you know, wants to be part of what Christ is doing, wants to know Christ more, wants to follow in his footsteps. And so if you're a married person, understand that your marriage is actually the gospel. You are proclaiming the gospel by your marriage and by the conduct with which you treat your spouse. You're declaring the gospel to the world. It's also part of why biblical Christianity has to hold a very tight line on marriage. That's why we say marriage is one man and one woman in a, in a marriage for life. Because Jesus said this is the picture, right? Paul explains it in, in Corinthians and says this is the picture. And so if we start corrupting that picture, then we are warping truly the message of the gospel. And that's why we say, in, that's among other reasons, that's one of the big reasons for why we say no, marriage has to be between one man and one woman. And that doesn't give us cause to judge other people who want to believe differently doesn't give us cause to consider ourselves more righteous, but it gives us cause to say this is where we do have to draw a line. And so that's marriage, romance, and all that good stuff in a nutshell. Moving on to Ecclesiastes. Book of Ecclesiastes was probably written at the end of Solomon's life. And, uh, you know, it, it's really interesting to remember Solomon life as a whole. Because Solomon, remember, he starts out, God appears to him as soon as he becomes king, says, what do you want? Solomon says, I just want wisdom. And God says, I'm going to give you wisdom. But because wisdom was, you know, forefront in your mind and, and you were hungering for that, I'm not just going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you all kinds of things. And Solomon goes on to become probably one of the richest men who has ever lived, probably one of the wisest men, if not the absolute wisest man who's ever lived, probably one of the most knowledgeable men who's ever lived. Uh, one of the most powerful men who's ever lived. Solomon, truthfully, had it all. And uh, Solomon also proceeded to then waste his life. Solomon had wisdom and chose to not walk in it. And he had wisdom and chose to decide, you know what, I'm going to walk in my comprehension instead of the word of God. The word of God said, Don't, a king of Israel should not multiply wives or horses or money for himself. And Solomon proceeded to multiply wives and horses and money for himself. Solomon said, the word of God does not have relevance to me because I'm an exception. And turns out he wasn't. So at the end of his life, he found himself very disillusioned. And so he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is, um, there's a couple ways to look at it, but in a sense, it's a thought experiment. It's kind of Solomon saying, if God doesn't exist, then here's what we've got. Here's what we're left with. Or if God exists in sort of a broad sense. And he uses the, the word for God, I think it's 30-some, 30 37 times 
in, in the book. And every time it's like the most generic word for God that you can use in Hebrew, right? So the big guy or the man upstairs, uh, he never calls him the Lord. He never calls him Yahweh. He's always referencing him by impersonal terms. And uh, so he starts out, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's how he's describing himself. Chapter 1, verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What's the key word there? Vanity. Vanity uh, could also be like vapor or breath. Everything is a breath. Uh, if you think about, you know, when it's cold and you breathe outside, you can see it for how long? You know, a second, maybe? Depends on the temperature. Uh, not very long. And Solomon says everything is like that. And he goes on, basically, his, that his conclusion, this is, he sort of drops his conclusion and then goes back and enforces it. Um, and he goes through and basically says, I've lived and tried everything, and this is my conclusion. Um, and so he goes through like the list of different things that he had tried. He tried pleasure. Um, in chapter 2, he said, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it's madness. And of pleasure, what is it accomplished? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine. So he's trying, you know, really pharmaceuticals and, and alcohol to try and get them stimulated. And how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of man to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Because like, you know, one nice tree in the yard just isn't good. You need a forest. Um, I bought male and female slaves and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Solomon says, I tried it all. And Solomon's interesting because a lot of us could say, you know, if I had a little more money, I could be happy. Solomon truthfully maxed it out. Uh, you, you would have a hard time. I mean, Solomon, by the time he's dying, basically they're trying to f come up with creative ways to use the gold in the kingdom. So they make 300 gold shields, which I heard one pastor say is basically like saying they make gold frisbees at that point because you can't use them for anything. Um, he's got like 12 steps with carved golden lions going up to his throne. His throne is made out of ivory and it's covered in gold, right? Because it wouldn't be, just wouldn't be sufficient if you made it out of like pine and covered it with gold, right? Let's make it with ivory and cover it with gold. That way it still looks the same, but we got to waste money somewhere, so we'll put it underneath the throne. So Solomon says, you know, basically I tried it all, and it didn't do me anything. And then he goes on, he describes, uh, you know, basically I pursued wisdom. I tried to know as much as I could, and that didn't do me anything. I tried to pursue labor. I did, I built all these things, and that didn't do me anything. And um, so verse 2, chapter 20, chapter 2, verse 24 he says, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. The best thing to do in life, according to Solomon at this point, is eat and drink and have a good time. Now here's the thing. If his initial premise is right, then this statement is correct. If everything is vanity, if everything is passing away, then truthfully, the best you could hope for is to get some good food and some good drink and have a good time. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if, if the resurrection doesn't happen, then we are the most pitiful of all people. And in particular, Christians. Because, you know, the world's out there 
trying to have as much of a good time as they can before they die. We're actually trying to exercise some self-restraint, and we're trying to deny ourselves. And so if the resurrection doesn't happen, then we're, we're blowing our chance, right? And so Solomon says, you know what? So if Solomon's correct in that everything is vanity, then he's absolutely correct. There's nothing better for a man to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. And Solomon's operating out of this idea of... Um, some people call it natural revelation, where you can look at the world around us. And basically, God has put enough of himself in the world. And there's enough of an awareness of God and you know, just the vastness of the universe and the complexity of life that you can look at the world and determine there's a God. And there's enough evidence of God in the world that Romans says you're without excuse if you say there's no God. But that's not going to tell you who God is. That's not going to reveal to you the name of God or the character of God or the attributes of God. And so Solomon is working out of like natural revelation. Like this is what I've observed, right? There's probably a God out there, but you know what? We're all going to die, so have a good time. He's, so basically he's got all his wisdom and his smarts and his knowledge, but he has walked away from the word of God. And so uh, chapter 6, yeah. Chapter 6, he said, uh, verse 3, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he doesn't even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, never knows anything. It's better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. Well, what's the answer? Do all go to one place? No. Now, if Solomon's initial premise is correct and everything's vanity, then yeah, sure. But he's starting with a bad premise. And so then he goes on, he says, who can tell a man what's going to be after him under the sun? What's the answer? God can. God can specifically reveal to us the concept of eternity, the concept of fellowship with God. Chapter 7, he goes on and he says, I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility, There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in wickedness. Chapter 7, verse 16. Solomon's like, word of the wise, do not be excessively righteous, and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Okay, don't be wicked enough that you get executed, but don't be so righteous that you don't have fun. That's Solomon's like conclusion, right? Which uh, Which is really sad. It's a pathetic loss of all the fullness of relationship that he could have had. Now, before we go like too, too hard on Solomon, uh, without not going too hard on Solomon, the final verse of Ecclesiastes, uh, well, the final two verses, says, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So after he goes through this whole book and basically says, you know what, if everything is vanity, then all of life is a waste, his final thought is, here's my, basically as an old man writing, this is the last thing he wrote, he says, the final conclusion is this, fear God and keep his commandments. And, then, and so he does end the book correctly. He ends the book in truth. We don't know if he followed his own advice. The, the tragic reality of Solomon's life is that he had wisdom and chose not to exercise it. 
And sometimes it's entirely possible to know the right thing to do and not walk in it. And so Solomon here, he tells us what to do, and he's correct. But we will not know, truthfully, I don't think we'll know until we get to heaven, whether or not he followed his own advice. And even when he says follow God, he's not saying follow Yahweh. He's not saying follow Jehovah. He's not saying follow the God of the Hebrews. Uh, he's saying follow, you know, God. And then it's very generic. And so he may be. And I'm not saying he's not. I'm not saying he is. I, I don't know, and it's really not my place to say. But he's right in this sense, right? The summary of, of life is to fear God and keep his commandments. And so I don't know what Solomon did, but I can determine what I'm going to do with that. You have no idea what Solomon did with that either. But each one of us can determine, okay, I know the truth. What am I going to do with it? Truth demands a response. What are we going to do with the truth? So the summary of life, the true point and purpose of life is to know God, to follow God and keep his commandments. What are you going to do about it? That's your call. And, and you're going to have to decide between you and the Lord what that is. That's Ecclesiastes Sure. My Bible says everything is meaningless. And you said it was vanity. Mm -hmm. Meaningless and vanity are totally different to me. So vanity would be, vanity, it's kind of one of those, it's a translation issue where the, the translators are trying to pick a word and it's a different translation, but the word vanity in the original context would be more like, kind of like just fading away. Um, so instead of like vanity, like, a woman who's, or a guy, who's checking themselves in the mirror all the time. Uh, it's much more like, uh, it's all just pointless. Like it's, it, you know, if vanity is like just passing beauty or things that are fading, it's not going to last. So it's the same, same, same idea, just a different word based on the translation. Yeah. So, um, so that's Ecclesiastes in a very tight nutshell. And that brings us to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a bunch of writings collected over Solomon's lifetime. Um, and Proverbs, we, you know, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, we both look at and say, okay, we remember how Solomon ended, and so we're going to sort through this, and we're going to weigh them against the rest of Scripture. And Proverbs is very much the same way, but it's, it's the Proverbs, not necessarily of Solomon, it's the Proverbs of God. It's God's wisdom to the Hebrew people, because as Solomon is writing these um, you know, we don't know for sure where each one of these was written in his life, but these have been held up and, and withstood the test of time. And these are really, they're not just proverbs of, of wisdom, they're proverbs of God's wisdom. Uh, and that's important for us. You know, we have our own cultural proverbs here in the States. We say, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, look before you leap. Uh, all those, you know, we read the little quotes wherever that say, you know, underneath says Chinese proverb, and underneath says, you know, you know, ancient. Scottish proverb or ancient Irish blessing. I once read an American proverb. It said, a tree never hits a driver except in self-defense. And I thought, I never knew that was an American proverb. But um, these are not like little tidbits, right? These are the word of God. And so uh, Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's a book of the wisdom of God for us. It's been the wisdom of God for us for 2,900 years. And it's still intact and we still have it. And so uh, if you are lacking wisdom in your life, uh, Scripture says if anybody lacks wisdom, let them ask for it. Yeah. And God will give it. He'll give it generously. So if you lack wisdom or you feel like you lack wisdom in your life, ask God for wisdom. 
And then as a very practical step, I'd suggest reading the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is 31 chapters long. So if you want to, you can read a chapter a day. And uh, if you fall on April or February or whatever, and you get to the first and you didn't get to the end of the book of Proverbs, just go back to chapter one and you'll get to chapter 31 that month. But uh, it can sort of, you know, it's a collection of Proverbs. It's a collection of little expressions. And so it doesn't really have like a super tight, neat and tidy outline. But uh, it, broadly speaking, can break down like two chunks. The first nine chapters are more or less talking about the need for wisdom. And chapters 10 through 31 are more just straight up little insights of wisdom for us, okay? So the first nine chapters, um, well, kind of critically, chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. So Proverbs starts out very clearly, wisdom is from God. Okay, knowledge is with the things we know. Knowledge is two and two. Knowledge is you drop something, it falls to the ground. Wisdom is what do we do with the knowledge? What do we do with the things we know? And that comes from God. Okay, and in his graciousness, there are some things that we can learn through experience and trial and error and age, but you can cut off a lot of a learning curve by asking God for wisdom. And so he gives us a lot of just straight down, stripped out wisdom in the book of Proverbs, okay? Warns, uh, warns men, don't go down back alleys where adulterous women hang out. It's kind of straightforward. Uh, tells, you know, says, all right, you know, basically work hard, don't be lazy, be honest. And so what, what I want us to do, because they're really just scattered all throughout the book of Proverbs, is we'll, we'll kind of go through it like we did the Psalms last week. Uh, we're not necessarily going to like read a whole passage out of Proverbs. I'm just going to go through, and I tried to grab a bunch that have uh, some of the sort of different highlights of the things Proverbs emphasizes. And so um, if you want to flip along or write them down, that's fine, but we'll be jumping pretty fast, so no pressure. Um, chapter 10, verse 9 says, he who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. So if you are a person of integrity, there's a sense of security that happens, right? It, it's just, and again, these aren't like, you know, these might be profound truths, I guess, in a sense, but they're also very simple. If you don't have to hide or, you know, cover your tracks, it's a lot easier to live life. Okay. Chapter 10, verse 17 he is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray, or he who ignores correction. So if you are a person who's willing to receive instruction, you are on a path towards life, towards actually growing and flourishing in your life. If you refuse instruction, uh, you're just going to go astray, right? You're going to kind of just go off the road, go off the edge. Chapter 11, verse 15. He who is guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it, but he who hates being a guarantor is secure. The word guarantor basically means cosigner. So he who is a cosigner on a loan will surely suffer for it. That's, I mean, so sometimes scriptures are just very practical. Cosigning a loan is a great way to wind up paying for the entire loan yourself. It's just, it's just not a great piece of financial advice. Um, 
chapter 11, verse 22. Like a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. It's just kind of a fact. Obnoxious, beautiful women are still obnoxious, beautiful women. Um, chapter 12, 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Uh, there's something to be said for not having to tell everything you know. Some of the, sm- well, there's a guy I can think of right now who's probably the absolute smartest person I've ever met in my life. Um, and you probably wouldn't figure it out unless you knew him for several years. But he is a genius. He only speaks like five or six languages. Uh, and has a, he got his doctorate a couple years ago, and he knows every single fact you've ever heard. He's a nightmare to play Trivial Pursuit with. Um, but he's a, just, he doesn't go to this church, in case you're wondering. Uh, he's this laid-back, humble personality. Not that none of you guys look smart, but um, he's, just, he's just this laid-back, humble guy who has no interest in touting off how smart he is. He's very smart and being smart is like being beautiful. It's not a crime. It's a great thing. But that's not the sufficiency, that's not the fullness of what we're created for. Uh, chapter 12, ch- I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 3. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. If you're not sure what to say, nothing is usually better than something, right? Uh, just great piece of advice. Uh, When Jesus goes on the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter starts talking, it says he didn't know what to say. So Peter's like, oh my gosh, Jesus and Moses and Elijah are here. Oh, I've got an idea. Uh, 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 Let's build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then God in his graciousness just shuts him up and says, Peter, this is my son. Listen to him. Right? If you don't know what to say, less is more. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 14. The mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on folly. Okay. Fools feed on folly. Do you realize we have an entire world right now where you can bury your entire existence in watching stupid things online? You can waste your existence on funny videos, right? And, and, uh, and it's, it's a tragedy. You know, in some ways, I think, uh, truthfully, I think video games are a greater curse than pornography in some senses. And I'm not saying pornography is not a problem, but I think video games and entertainment are the greater social evil because it's so easy for us to say, yeah, it's just, I was relaxing. I was chilling out. I was, I needed a break. Right? It's so easy for us to just, you know, with, with at least with something like pornography, we can say, no, that's a sin and that's evil and it might you know, it, yes, it can be a legitimate addiction problem, and I'm not taking away from that. But there's a whole world of wasting your life that is no less damaging, right? And so don't feed on folly. I'm not saying it's a sin to be entertained, all right? Don't, don't misunderstand me. It's okay to enjoy entertainment once in a while, just like it's okay to have a piece of chocolate once in a while. But if you're having chocolate and donuts and cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you are not a healthy person. You have really no capacity to even understand what a healthy physical body looks like. And if you are consuming all of your mind's energy 
on entertaining yourself, on entertaining yourself, and on entertaining yourself, you're gonna be in the exact same state mentally and spiritually, right? Yeah. And, and truthfully, I think as a church, uh, it's important for us to live with that awareness, right? If we all took our iPhones and swiped to see how much screen time we used up today, right? And I won't make everybody do it right now. But if you looked at how many minutes you spent on your phone today and then asked yourself, what would happen if I spent the exact, that amount of minutes tomorrow praying? Or that amount of minutes tomorrow even reading something that will teach me a new skill to do with my hands. But if I spent that amount of time reading the word of God and praying, what would my life look like, right? Again, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying entertainment is always wrong, but it is not our sustenance. Chapter 16, verse three, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. So if you want a mansion in the name of Jesus, you'll get a mansion in the name of Jesus. Is that what that means? No, you don't get to claim beamers for Jesus, sorry. Um, but if you commit your works to the Lord, the Lord will orient your thoughts according to his plans. And all of a sudden, you're going to want the things that he wants. And if you want what God wants, God will establish it, right? If you want holiness in your life, truthfully, God will bring holiness into your life, right? It might not be fun, but your plans will be established. You you will be oriented with the will and the purpose of Christ. Chapter 18, 18, parenthetically, is a killer chapter in Proverbs. Chapter 18, 1, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. If you cut yourself off from people who can tell you that you're stupid, you will become stupid, right? You need human beings in your life. You need a community of people to be around you to give you a a buffer or else you will become this own echo chamber in your mind and you will rage against all wise judgment. Verse two, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. A fool is the person who doesn't care what you have to say. He just has to tell you what's on his mind. Chapter, you guys getting the idea of these? Right? A lot of these are not like, you know, these are, these are just basic guidelines for life. If you lack wisdom, ask for it. If you lack wisdom, ask the Lord for it. And then say, okay, I'm asking the Lord for it. Now, I'm going to read the wisdom that he wrote down with the expectation that he is going to instill that in my heart. And so, I mean, we could, we could go on, uh, well, we could go on all night. But in the interest of time, we'll sort of wrap it up. Um, you know, there's warnings in here against drinking. Um, it says wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. Uh, it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So if a, if a fool is unwilling to receive any instruction, then just don't waste your breath. If a fool is at a point where they might be, then you can answer them as their folly deserves so that you can help them see where they're at, right? But be careful about wasting your breath on a fool. Uh, just like iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Right? Two men or two ladies can sharpen each other. You get iron on a grindstone, and what are you doing? You're abrading it. You're wearing it away. But if you wear it away with some skill, you can turn iron into some incredibly uh, lethal stuff. Right? Iron is, is incredible if you abrade it correctly. If you take iron and abrade it incorrectly, what do you do? You destroy it. 
You just shred it, right? But iron, you get two men together and they start rubbing each other. And they might, it might feel like they're rubbing each other the wrong way. They might be grinding each other away, but you know what they're doing? They're sharpening each other up, right? They are, they're getting ready. They're, they're being honed to a razor edge so they can do the job that needs to be done. And then as, they, as sort of a, we wrap up, um, chapter 30 and chapter 31 are written by two guys other than Solomon. Some people think 31, it says it's written by Lemuel. Some people think that that's maybe a nickname for Solomon. Um, chapter 30 is written by a guy named Agur, which is kind of a fun name. Um, and, and just as we're sort of in the home stretch, he says, verse 2, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. So he's recognizing his own foolishness. And it takes a certain amount of wisdom to recognize that you don't have as much wisdom as you need. Right? Fools think they're wise. Wise people often say, I am not nearly as wise as I ought to be. And so he says, I really don't know anything. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? This guy, Agur, is really going the opposite route of where Solomon went in Ecclesiastes. Solomon said, I have looked at all these things and comprehended them. This guy says, I know there has got to be a God out there. How is he going to reveal himself to me? How is he going to reveal himself to me? How is he going to make himself known? And then he says, what is his name or what is his son's name? Right? He says, there has got to be a God out there. What's his name? What's his son's name? And he asked that question 2,900 years ago and we know the answer. Right? His name is I Am. His son's name is Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. That's his title. He's Jesus the Christ. Right? He is and he was and he is to come. He is the one who is coming for us. He's the one who's redeemed us. He's the one who is purifying us for eternity. And so who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who came down for us and has ascended back again to bring us to the Father? Jesus Christ. Who promised us life through the Holy Spirit? Jesus Christ. Who has bound the waters in his garment? Who's established all the ends of the earth? Jesus Christ. Right? So what's his name? What's his son's name? We can know. Solomon, towards the end of his life, when he wrote Ecclesiastes, he just, he just drifted away from the word of God. You know, Solomon lived life as though he was uh, fully comprehensive in his own mind because he was super smart, right? He could understand it and thank you, no thank you. The word does not really apply to me. And he walked away and he wasted all that God had given him. This guy here says, I'm just an idiot, but I know that I need to know God. And so this guy right here in these couple verses uses his wisdom more than Solomon did. Solomon had boatloads more wisdom and didn't use it. This guy did not have very much wisdom, but he had just enough wisdom to say, I need to know the Lord, right? And so if you are not as smart as Solomon, or if I'm not as smart as Solomon, or if you're not as rich, or if you're not as powerful, or if you don't have as many wives as Solomon, take heart. Because none of us do, but we can all have this much wisdom to say, I need a relationship with the Lord. I need to do something with the truth that God has laid out. Right? That's where we're going for. And then chapter 31 is basically a list of descriptions of a virtuous woman. And since I'm single, I won't 
elaborate too far. Um, but anyways, so, thank you. <laughs> so anyways, back to chapter 30. Uh, we know the Lord. We can know the Lord. If you don't, you have the full ability to, but don't choose not to. We can walk in all the wisdom that God's offering us. He has promised to give it generously, right? And so if you lack wisdom, ask. If you lack the fullness of the relationship with the Lord that you want, ask for it. If you lack the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to help you walk in you know, in victory. If you're tired of yo-yo Christianity where you're doing good and then doing bad and then doing good and then doing bad, ask, right? And James tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. The God who created light is happy to give you every per- good and perfect gift, right? So there we go. Next week, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would go deep in our hearts, that we would uh, live lives that are affected by it. God, we, we thank you that we have that example of Agur and that we can have enough awareness and enough wisdom to know that we need you and that that's enough, uh, that's enough to, to begin on a, uh, in a relationship with you. So God, we pray that you would fill us up with your Holy Spirit, that you would truly guide us and lead us by your word, that we would be people marked by wisdom. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.